You're listening to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, the podcast series that delivers access, insights, and perspective from some of the industry's most respected active managers and thought leaders. From market commentaries and economic analysis to personal finance, investing, and beyond, On The Money covers it all. Because when it comes to your money, we're on it. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm your guest host, Tom Dicker, Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Dynamic Funds. Today I'm with my longtime partner, Steve Hall, Vice President and Portfolio Manager on Dynamic's Equity Income Team. Steve has been with Dynamic since 2013, working on small caps, and he is the Equity Income Team's expert on consumer stocks. Steve has 20 years of investing experience covering small caps, US stocks, and consumer stocks, and is one of my favorite people to talk to about investing, period. So before we get into the opportunities in small caps today, I want people to get an introduction to you, Steve. How did you get interested in investing or want to have a career in investing? Thanks, Tom, and thanks for having me on the podcast. I was hoping that before we got into me answering that question, we could maybe talk a little bit about how we met because (laughs) we actually met before I joined Dynamic. I remember. Tom and I met approximately one kilometer below the Earth's surface in the middle of Saskatchewan. And what I remember most about that trip was this extremely long elevator ride from the surface to the bottom of this mine. And we're excited to see this potash that everyone's been talking about. And it's basically this giant empty field. And the mine manager who's giving us this tour announces, you're probably wondering where all the potash is, but this mine has been in operation for over a hundred years. And all the potash close to the shaft, of course, is the most convenient potash to mine and it's all been mined. So we're going to jump in a golf cart and travel 40 minutes to where the actual potash mining is occurring today. Yeah, it was so surreal to drive for, you know, many kilometers underground. Yeah, I just remember thinking like this must be what Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin must have felt (laughs) like um, because it very much felt like being on the moon. Um, It was uh, definitely a very cool thing. And of course, we kept in touch after that and uh, remained friends. So... That's how you met me. Uh, You were an investor at that moment, but you have to stop dodging the question. Now, how did you get interested in investing? I wish I could give the story that I got birthday money on my 10th birthday and I invested it in Disney and caught the (laughs) investing bug. But the truth is I didn't get interested in investing until much later, probably my last year of undergrad. I took economics, but I was much more interested in macroeconomics. I was interested in how civilizations got better over time, how standards of living improved through productivity, through technology. And what I found most of my economics courses were trying to teach was policy. It was, should the government increase interest rates by 25 basis points or 50 basis points? Should it decrease interest rates? Should it increase the money supply? Very policy, very Keynes versus Milton Friedman, which I found just kind of boring. So I started shifting my classes and my focus more towards finance. I found that much more interesting. But I think what really sealed the deal for me was I remember the Toronto Star was running a contest and it was a, it wasn't called this at the time, but essentially a sports fantasy league for hockey. It was called Hockey Stocks and it was actually done online. And how it worked was you got this play money, call it a million dollars, and you could invest it in NHL teams. It wasn't players, it was teams. 
And how you won the contest was you had to collect the most dividends. And you got a dividend. If your team won a game, you got one dividend. If your team won two games, you got two dividends. If it won three games in a row, you got four dividends. And if it won four games in a row, you got eight. It was actually brilliant because if it had just accumulated linearly, it would have been pretty boring. And of course, if the team lost, you got zero and you went back to square one and they had to win a game to get one dividend again. And so the strategy that most of these contestants took was, I'm going to find all these hot teams that are on a winning streak and buy those shares. And of course, those are the most expensive shares to buy, right? Momentum investing. It was momentum investing <laughs> and everyone did it, but not everybody. So my strategy was, I'm going to wait until a team has won eight or nine games and everybody's in this stock, in this team, hoping for that, that win. win that's going to pay them 32 or 64 dividends. And then they lose and it plummets and everyone's just trying to get out. And I'm sitting there, you know, lowballing them. And literally they would go down like 90%, like after they <laughs> lost a game. And by, you know, halfway through the season, I discovered there was like a handful of these value investors like me and we'd accumulated all the shares, <laughs> you know, and you, you actually had to file if you're over 10%. It was very cool, very ahead of its time. Um, I don't know if I won the contest, but I certainly caught the bug. So it's a very Canadian story too. having hockey yes. is the way you get into investing as hockey is the gateway to so many things uh, here in Canada. I really like that. And I also like how you identified value investing uh, on your own and identified some of the follies of momentum investing and hype and how everyone can crowd into a stock or a team when things are going well. So what was the first time you actually bought a stock? When did you actually get into real stock investing? Yeah, around the same time. My last year of university, I took a job working at the mall in a kiosk selling Fido phones around Christmas time. There was no selling involved. It was literally this massive lineup at the kiosk in the mall. And it was, you could have phone A or phone B. I literally just took people's money. And I thought that I had discovered something that no one else had discovered. And that's that cell phones are this thing and, <laughs> um, and they're going to be very popular. Um, and I was early to this trend. And so I went and I bought shares in Microcell which was the owner of the Fido brand at the time. Right. Eventually Rogers bought them and they're now part of Rogers. It was also the late 90s. We were in a massive tech bubble. It was a good lesson in what Howard Marks would call first level versus second level thinking. As it turns out, I was um, very late to this trend. And like most first time investors, I uh, lost my shirt. Why don't we talk about that? This whole notion of first level versus second level thinking, I think it's such a great concept. Not everyone may be as familiar with it as we are. So what's first and second level thinking? It's like I try to explain to people who ask me, for example, a number of years ago, well, cannabis has become legal now in Canada. Like, isn't that a thing? Doesn't that just mean all the stocks are going to go up in price once it's legalized? The market doesn't work that way. The market looks forward. It's a discounting mechanism. And so... You have to always ask yourself when you're buying a stock, what expectations are already embedded in this price? Usually any sort of good news, any sort of positive future event is already going to be discounted in the stock. You're not going to get the benefit of that if you invest. And so that's what Howard Marks would say. The second level thinking is, what is everybody else thinking? What has everybody else already expected? Almost like a spread on a football game. You know, if Tom Brady's playing in the Super Bowl, you know he's the best quarterback. He's the GOAT. 
So it's not whether his team's going to win. It's are they going to win by 15 points or 20 points? Because they might still win, but only win by 10, and you're going to lose that bet. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what might be really relevant to some folks that are listening today, which is your area of expertise, consumer. Obviously, the consumers had a lot of stuff happen since COVID. You know, a lot of stimulus, rates went down, rates have moved up a whole lot. I think the consumer stocks remain a real battleground in Canada and the US. So what's going on with the consumer today? What are you bullish on? Where do you see opportunities in consumer? I think everybody's been waiting for the consumer to roll over and stop spending. And it's going to lead to this recession. As you know, consumer spending is about two thirds of the economy. So, so goes the consumer, so goes the economy is the saying. I think where investors get it wrong is they try to think of the consumer as this rational economic agent that you read about in the economic textbooks. I think you got to throw away the economics textbook and you got to pick up a copy of Maslow and his hierarchy of needs and think about that. So what it really comes down to is the employment situation for consumers. Do they have a job? Do they feel safe in their job? I talked to this retail consultant pretty regularly who used to work for the May department stores, which is now Macy's. And he worked there for many years. And he tells this great story about how they used to tried everything to try to forecast consumer spending, what the next nine months, 15 months was going to look like. And they came up with all these complicated forecasting models with interest rates and with consumer confidence and inflation, GDP, PMIs. None of it worked. And what eventually did work and that was their go-to when they would survey consumers is they would ask them three questions. Do you have a job? Do you think you'll have a job a year from now? And if you lost your job, do you think you could get another job that paid just as well? And if you were to ask consumers those three questions today, the answer to those questions is yes. It's not that the consumer has a budget every year and they, well, inflation's up this much and so I got to cut this much. There's a lot of credit available still. You could have great credit and a lot of income coming in, but if you are worried about your job, it's very quick to stop spending. You'll see consumers cut that spending off very quickly. On the other hand, if you get squeezed, but you still feel good about your job, then you're okay with maybe borrowing a little bit to buy that new car. Or, but getting back to Maslow, you can very quickly go from, I want to buy a new car to, I'm going to stop spending because I'm worried about how I'm going to feed my family and pay my mortgage. It's very interesting that the last recession was obviously during COVID so different than say the 2008 recession because the consumer ended up better off during the recession. It's just so different. So I think it follows that the consumer may be behaving a little bit differently right now because the lessons learned over the last few years weren't necessarily the same ones that were learned in previous recessions. So you maybe just don't have that sensitivity to higher rates, not least of which because you have savings, but also because there's this sense that you know, maybe there'll be money for me if I do lose my job. So I don't need to worry quite as much as, as I would have in the past. Do you think that's true? Definitely one of the trends you're seeing now is a shift in what consumers are spending their money on. If you think about during COVID, you couldn't travel, you couldn't go out to restaurants. The service economy was hit hard. People were buying barbecues. They were buying exercise equipment. Those categories are definitely slowing right now. And I think there's a lot of 
investors looking at those categories and saying, well, look, the consumer is slowing, they're getting impacted by inflation. But it was really, I think, a lot of pull forward. You have your barbecue, you have your, your Peloton, your exercise machine. What people want to do now is they want to go out, they want to travel, they want to go back to restaurants. It's revenge spending, and you're seeing a lot of those sectors right now quite healthy. So I think it's a mistake to look at certain categories and say, well, that's a weak consumer. They're pulling back because they can't afford it versus they're pulling back because they already have it. I think that's a great explanation of the consumer changing pre-COVID versus post-COVID. China's a fair bit behind where we are. You know, when you think about reopening in the US started really you know, in some cases in 2020, definitely in 2021. In Canada, it was more 2021, 2022. In China, it's really 2023. How are you thinking about the impact on the stock market and consumer stocks of China's reopening? So I think one of the big opportunities I'm seeing right now and where we're investing as a team is in the apparel space. There's a lot of inventory right now in the system. And Usually that's a bad thing for apparel stocks, but I think it's a bit different this time for the reasons you kind of mentioned with the China being slow to reopen, having rolling periods of lockdowns for not just the consumer demand, but also for the production of a lot of goods. And so essentially what happened was apparel companies were getting late shipments. So they began ordering their seasonal merchandise much earlier. And then eventually those constraints got better, shipping times improved. And so the inventory that you were hoping to get going into March for spring, you got in December and you got in January unexpectedly. So the inventory is piled up because of a timing issue with shipping. It's not piling up because consumers are not buying the stuff, which is very different. And so if you're willing to look past a couple quarters, as a lot of these apparel companies work through this inventory or not even work through it, but just essentially hold it for when it's actually going to be needed. If the consumer remains healthy and demand remains healthy, and we think it will, those margins are going to hold in much better than they typically would hold in when you have high inventory and you need to discount it to get rid of it. Right. And that's a big problem with having too much inventory is the discounting negatively impacts the margins. And it's obviously it goes well beyond just your company, right? Even if your competitors are discounting, that can still hurt you because it'll pull sales away from you. Yeah. And it also actually hurts the brand when you see it on sale. And something we talk a lot about is this idea of a flywheel effect, right? Right. And so when you're having to discount products, it can change the image in the consumer's mind of the quality of this product. And then they might not want to make a repeat purchase, right? So you kind of get into this downward spiral where you're discounting. And then your competitors all have to discount and you can get into a vicious cycle where it can take you much longer to get out of that. You need to clear inventory, you need to rebuild your brand. Nike would call it getting into a pull market where you're waiting for the consumer to pull demand back from you rather than you're pushing all this excess inventory on them. And um, that's just not when yeah. you want to be investing in the apparel space. So why don't we get into it on the flywheels? Because this is something you and I have spent lots of time talking about over the years. And I think the first one we ever did was on Nike, yeah. or rather, I should say that you did and, and you brought to the team. And then we've tried to apply it in a lot of other places because it was such a great way to think about the business model. So, um, you know, I always say when I'm talking about flywheels for Nike, it starts with great sneakers. Can you take us through how does a flywheel work? Sure. Every consumer company, whether they know it or not, is in a flywheel. 
it's a term that was first coined by Jim Collins in a, his book, Good to Great. And it's essentially how the various drivers of a business reinforce each other in either a positive or a negative way. So the example with Nike is, well, Nike makes the best products, which attracts the best athletes because the best athletes want to wear the best products. Nike pays these athletes to endorse the shoes. All the kids out there, they want to emulate their heroes who are the best athletes. They don't want to wear what the number three guy or number four guy is wearing. They want to wear what number one is wearing. So then Nike gets the best market share. They get the most sales, the most profits. They have more money to reinvest in R&D, into marketing, to make the best product, which then attracts the best athletes. And it's this virtuous circle that's just very difficult to compete with. Right. I always really like that. And with Nike, it's very easy for people to see. I think it's tougher for an industrial company or a financial services company to understand how that works, but everyone's bought a pair of running shoes. So it's a nice kind of easy way to get your head around how a flywheel works. And then once you open your mind to this idea that when a business is doing well, it's because there is a flywheel, then it kind of lets you take that mental model out there into the world, uh, which is why I always thought that was so brilliant because it helps you go from idea to idea saying like, well, what's the flywheel here? And if you can't figure it out, that's a problem. Yeah. Either there isn't one yeah. or it's too difficult for yeah. you. Or is it spinning faster? Or God forbid, is it now you know, going, going in the, the wrong reverse. direction? And I think you know, a paradox of thinking about the flywheel, and we always think pretty long term with our investing, is quite often when that flywheel is in effect and the moat is growing, sometimes your margins are not going higher. They're actually flat or they're going down. And that's sometimes a hard thing for shorter term investors to get their head around. Because you're investing in the moat. You're investing in the moat. You're, you're, those investments are going to pay off years and years down the road. And so it seems like the story with Nike, it's always, well, when are these margins going to go higher? And But they're constantly taking those excess profits and reinvesting it back in the business, forsaking short-term margins for long-term share gains, category growth. It's been a great stock over the long run. I'm reminded even just last week with Home Depot, they announced they're going to spend an extra $1 billion to uh, pay their employees more, to retain talent, to just get better employees. Stock market didn't like it. Stock was down 5 or 6% that day because 2023 earnings might not grow as fast, but they're expanding their moat. They're becoming a better company. They're going to crush their competitors because they've got the best workers, which is going to have the best customer service. That's their flywheel, right? Right. Great retention, having all of those employees that are customer facing, being that much happier. And everyone who's been to a Home Depot versus their competitors, like, you know the difference. They have more people on the floor doing customer-facing things, and they're generally higher quality, more knowledgeable, willing to take the time with you. Whereas, you know, you go into some of their competitors, you're lucky if you can even track someone down. Yeah, they're hiring the, high, you know, the kids from high school versus Home Depot's hiring like a, someone who was actually probably in the construction business right. or actually maybe had their own business at some point. So we talked a bit about consumers, you know, a bit about apparel. The other big area you cover is small caps. Why don't we talk a little bit about what's the opportunity in small and mid caps right now? It's interesting. I was reading Warren Buffett's letter to shareholders that he puts out every year around this time. And he specifically spent some time in his letter to talk about two investments that he made back in the mid 90s. One was Coca-Cola and the other was American Express. And he talked about how, I mean, those stocks are essentially up 10 to 15 times what he paid for them. 
I think the dividends that he's getting from Coke now is the equivalent of like half his market value of his investment. It's grown that much. And these are two large, almost mega cap stocks today. But if you go back to when Buffett was buying these companies, and I did, they were both about a 15 billion market cap. They were much closer to being mid cap stocks back then than they were to large cap. And so the obvious opportunity is just good companies that are mid caps do eventually grow into large cap companies. I do think also there's a bit of a misperception that, at least in Canada, that somehow small or mid-sized companies mean small or mid-sized returns. If you own a large cap fund in Canada, I hate to break it to you, but those stocks are much more closer to being mid-caps than they are to being large caps. So there's 235 stocks in the Toronto Composite Index. 200 of those are under 12 billion market cap US. Wow. Which would qualify them as mid caps. They would be much more of a better fit in the S&P 400, which is the mid cap index. The, right. the average market cap of an S&P 500 company is 450 billion. Whoa. And I think the average is 30 something billion in Canada. So if you're already comfortable with mainstream Canada, there's no reason why you shouldn't be comfortable with US with mid-caps. US mid caps. That's very interesting. So what do you think the advantages are that you have when you've got this whole team of people that are looking at small and mid-cap securities versus trying to do it on your own? One of the biggest opportunities in the small and mid-cap spaces are just not that well covered. There's 60 analysts that cover Amazon. It's going to be very difficult to get much of an advantage, at least in the short term, on a company like that versus a lot of mid-cap names have three or four analysts that cover it. And to be frank, they're not always the best analysts. They're usually the junior analyst that has just been promoted and so they give them the small stocks or they're being covered because the brokerage firm underwrote the IPO and they sort of have to cover it. Right. Some banking Um, relationship. Yeah. So it's not always the best research. So obviously having, you know, the expertise of the equity income team with expertise in every sector, you know, going a mile wide, also going a mile deep allows us to uncover a lot of great opportunities in the mid cap space and the small cap space. So one of the reasons people like small caps and mid caps is in a world where the large caps are so big, as you just outlined, they're often having a harder time growing and they need to go out and do M&A. Do you see opportunities for that, especially given rates have moved up a little bit? Yeah. One of my favorite statistics is there's enough cash on the balance sheets of the S&P 500 to pay a 40% premium on every S&P 400 company and take it private. That's how much cash there is. And that's just the public companies. And I'm not even talking about private equity. Which have you know, many trillions many, of dollars of. And continue to raise money in this environment. Right. Blackstone just raised an opportunities fund. KKR has raised a fund for mid caps specifically. I read, I read an article in Barron's last month with one of the partners at Thomas Bravo, which is a tech private equity fund specifically targeting small and mid-cap software companies that have become much more affordable in their opinion. And as you said, large caps need to grow. And every large cap is faced with a, well, do I build it myself or do I buy it decision? And we know that building things today is just very difficult. I mean, we could talk about a physical plant or a factory, but building a sales team is also very difficult. It's just hard to get 
people, materials. We're in a very supply constrained world. So I think if I'm a large cap company and I want to grow, I think looking at the small and mid cap public companies as targets makes a lot of sense. I think it's so true. This idea that an inflationary environment, while it does increase your funding costs, obviously. So if you need to fund things with debt, it's more expensive. However, it also increases replacement cost of everything. It doesn't matter if it's cement or steel or land or people, intellectual property. Everything's gone up dramatically in price over the last few years since COVID. So those things that you have already have gotten much more expensive as a result of inflation. And you know, the stock market, of course, is impatient and doesn't necessarily always appreciate that on day one. They don't always necessarily appreciate that while interest rates have gone up, the price of, for instance, what I cover, public REIT may go down right now, but the price to replace that piece of real estate might be dramatically higher because rebuilding it is so much more costly. So I, I think that makes perfect sense also in the small and mid-cap space. And it's probably true of everything from software to an industrial, to a financial services company. Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel like the last, call it 10 to 12 years since the great financial crisis, asset light was the way everybody wanted to go. If you had too many assets, that was a bad thing. And we might be at a point where that starts to reverse. Nobody wanted any assets and there's not enough of them now. Right. And so these terrible asset heavy companies um, that were sort of ignored or, you know, dissed are now probably becoming extremely valuable. Steve, that was a great conversation. Before we go, could you give the listeners your number one non-investing book that would help them become a better investor? Without a doubt, I would say my favorite non-investing book, and I... I try to read it at least once a year. It's called Thinking in Systems. It's by Donella Meadows. And she wasn't the person who came up with systems thinking, but she learned from one of the greats, a guy named Jay Forrester, who was a professor at MIT, and she was his student. And then she went on to teach systems thinking at Dartmouth. It's a short book. It's a pleasure to read. What is systems thinking? It's essentially anything that's a collection of pieces that has interconnections and has a goal is a system. The human body is a system. A company is a system. There's an ecosystem. And so it's essentially a way to try to understand a complex world. And one of the big insights I got from that book is, so think of a bathtub. A bathtub full of water is a stock. It's a stock of water. There's flow from the taps, the faucets that bring water in. And then there's a drain where the water flows out. And, you know, Donna goes on to talk about how everything that we sort of pay attention to in the world is the flows. It's the changes. It's what makes the news. It's the profits and the sales of a company. These are all the flows. But what you should really be paying attention to is the stocks, because that's where the big changes happen. That's where those sort of structural regime changes happen is when you have changes to stocks. And she started off as an environmentalist. She wrote a book called Limits to Growth in the 70s. So she had very much an environmental angle to it. But uh, I use it for investing as a framework. So I said an example of flows would be income statements. An example of stocks would be balance sheets. I just don't think investors look at balance sheets enough. It doesn't matter until it matters, right? 
And another thing from the book is that a lot of the solutions that we come up with to complex problems usually don't work. And in fact, it usually makes the problem worse. And so when you understand these problems as big systems with moving parts, with its own goals and its own agendas, you start to think of policies that are a little bit more effective. And so I love systems thinking. I, love, I wish I learned this in school. I wish they taught it in elementary school. I wish they taught it in high school. I wish more people read this book. So that's my recommendation. Tom, I got to ask you, what's a non-investment book that you would recommend for our listeners? Well, in fairness, most of them would be books that you had me read because <laughs> you, uh, you're really great at identifying these sorts of books. And in fact, I have a very large shelf just dedicated to Steve Hall book <laughs> recommendations that, that are yet to read. And I will get to them one day. Maybe I'll be yeah. retired. <laughs> uh, so my recommendation, I'm going to recommend one from another colleague of ours, Jennifer Stevenson, who recommended the book. How the World Really mm. Works by Vaclav Schmiel. And it's Great another book. book that's really about the environment and about energy. You know, when you go to the gas pump and you think about what the impact of that is on the environment, about, you know, transportation's energy usage, if you think that that is where your energy impact stops, the system is so much more complicated than that. And Everyone kind of gets that, well, there's some energy that gets used in construction, and there must be some energy that gets used to ship things to me or to make some food, but it's really mind-blowing how much energy is used in places that aren't your gas tank. And I think when you understand that, it opens your mind to this idea of, holy moly, this energy transition problem is way bigger than everyone driving a Tesla. Yes. It's yeah. way bigger than that. And energy and fossil fuels are way more integral than I think than I appreciate, certainly than I think the mainstream media appreciates. So I would highly recommend that for everyone. Yeah, his example of the tomato and the two teaspoons or tablespoons of, of diesel that would be required to bring you that tomato to your, your kitchen table was, for me, a bit mind-blowing. Yeah, absolutely. That was it for me, too. It's yeah. that, that moment of, like, there's a lot more fossil fuels in this house yes. than I appreciate yeah. it. Well, thank you again, Steve. I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. That was a great conversation. And uh, I can't wait till next time. Always fun talking with you, Tom. Thanks very much. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete lineup of actively managed funds, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. Thanks for joining us. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. 
To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption or option changes or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated.